Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, August the 9th, 2018, and this is episode 2268 of the Survival Podcast, and uh, it is Listener Calls Day. This is where you call into the Think Line, the number that you call. 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. You can also go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and go to the contact page. You'll see a button there for a thing called the speak pipe. You hit that button and you can leave me a message and it will be delivered to me through the magic of the interwebs. Either way, if you're going to do this, make sure you call from a quiet area, ask your question or make your point up front with a single sentence or two at most, Then give me the details. You'll be more likely to get on the air that way. Here's what we've got today. I have a question on how permaculture or common sense even might reduce the California wildfires on an annual basis. Um, a question from JR. There's a really thought-provoking question. Is it ever okay for a business to restrict concealed carry rights? And that's a deep one, and you'll hear an example he gives. He's not in love with the idea. In fact, he doesn't know that he could ever do it as a business owner, but there is a question there that I think is worth looking at and examining. Uh, next up, rebuilding versus just tuning up old fishing reels like the Mitchell 300. I think that's a cool thing. Uh, making the choice on 22 long rifle ammo. That question wasn't real clear, so I'm going to answer it from like three different angles, and that'll probably give it the most uh, utility for everyone out there anyway. Uh, dealing with the system when you're already in the system, as in something like child protective services, and when it is better to go along, to get along, uh, than to fight, uh, especially publicly. This is a, a tragic situation this person's uh, family is in, and um, I'll, I'll do my best with some thoughts on this. Pretty much, in this case, what not to do. Uh, and then I got something fun for you, not really a call, but I, this guy I found on YouTube called Alex the French Guy. And I want to tell you a little bit about his YouTube channel and about a little online tool that he made for your stir fries. Uh, because the last question is, well, I mean, dealing with CPS is just anybody's worst nightmare. Um, they have way too much power. And they can act in, in ways with no checks and balances on them. And I thought maybe ending after that with something just kind of fun would be a good thing, a little uh, little lightening of the mood. It's something cool for you to use in your kitchen. Uh, remember yesterday... Um, we did have our, our guest on, and he mentioned how um, cooking with your kids, how, how well that really works. And I said that years ago, and he heard that and how much it's done uh, for him cooking with his kids. So, hey, there's not many things that are quicker and easier to make than a simple stir-fry, and this thing's kind of cool. We'll get to all that more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and take a look at the year in history. The year in history uh, is... Uh, or actually this day in history. I keep saying year in history because we did that for so long. This day in history, August the 9th, we're going to go back to World War II again, 1945. The atomic bomb is dropped on Nagasaki. On this day in 1945, a second atom bomb is dropped on Japan by the United States at Nagasaki, resulting finally in Japan's unconditional surrender. 
The devastation wrought at Hiroshima was not sufficient to convince the Japanese War Council to accept Potsdam Conference demand for unconditional surrender. The United States had already planned to drop their second atomic bomb named, named Fat Man on August the 11th in the event of such a recountenance, but bad weather expected for that day pushed the date up to August 9th. So at 1.56 a.m., a specifically adapted B-29 bomber called Boxcar, after its unusual commander, Frederick Bach, took off from Tinian Island under the command of Major Charles W. Sweeney. Nagasaki was a shipbuilding center, the very industry intended for destruction. The bomb was dropped at 11.02 a.m., 1,650 feet above the city. The explosion unleashed the equivalent force of 22,000 tons of TNT. The hills that surrounded the city did a better job of containing the destructive force, but the number of killed is estimated at anywhere between 60,000 and 80,000. Exact figures are impossible uh, to, get, to, to get because the blast having obliterated bodies and disintegrated records. General Leslie R. Groves, the man responsible for organizing the Manhattan Project, would solve the problem of producing and delivering a nuclear explosion, estimated that another bomb would be ready for use against Japan by August 17 or 18. But it was not necessary, even though the War Council still remained divided. Quote, it's far too early to say that the war is lost, end quote, opined the Minister of War. Emperor Hirohito, by the request of two War Council members eager to end the war, met with the Council and declared that continuing the war can only result in the annihilation of the Japanese people. The Emperor of Japan gave his permission for unconditional surrender. Um, this is one of those things that you look back and killing, you know, almost 200,000 and two, two bombs combined, almost 200,000 people, most of which were civilians, is wrong. There, there's no way that it wasn't wrong. But what was the alternative? This is one of those things where you'd like to be able to go back in time and say we should have done this. I, I for one, have a hard time with this second bomb being dropped. Um, I think that the war could have been ended with, with much less loss of life, with simply continuing to communicate to the Japanese. We have, we have dozens of these things on the way. And I think that Japan was so on the ropes at this point, even though they were not willing to admit it, that we still would have ended up with unconditional surrender. And, and you have to think about the number of people killed directly and indirectly by that second bomb. On the other hand, even after this second bomb, it wasn't unanimous among the Japanese, hey, it's time to, it's time to surrender here. So it, it, it's hard to know. And Japan was working on some pretty devastating weaponry of its own um, and had activities even in and around the Panama Canal area. So it, it's easy to look back and think, you know, we should have done this. And I think the other thing that people don't realize is what we had been doing leading up to this the Japanese people lived mainly in homes that were made out of paper and wood. And we were firebombing cities like Tokyo for a long time before this. And we can sit and justify it, but there is no doubt, had we lost the war, the United States would have been seen as guilty by everyone in the world that wasn't on our side of war crimes for firebombing civilian areas, areas, which is what we did um, under the under the you know supervision of Robert McNamara, who ended up being the guy that totally screwed up Vietnam. Um, 
it, there, this is why we talk about history, though. There is no easy answer here. Even if you went back to August the 8th, 1945, one day before this, and you, you became Truman, don't think that the answer would be easy. And we need to be careful when we look back through the lens of history how critical we are. Rather than being critical of the time and the place and the situation, what we should be asking ourselves is, how do we learn from this and how do we avoid this in the future? And then remember what I've always said. Some of that is going to happen. Something, if somebody did something stupid in the past, someone else will probably do it in the future. So we also need to take the lesson from history is how we protect ourselves from the fact that history, even though it doesn't always repeat itself, it, it does often rhyme. There's, you know, there's a lot of lessons that come out of the Cold War. And I think a lot of young people today don't realize what that was like going to school having drills where you you know covered your head and went under your desk, um, the, re the reality that nuclear war could break out at any time. And while I'm not saying we're going to have a nuclear war, because I, I really don't think we will, the potential for us to go back to that type of a state where we are in the type of situation where it's like a pressure cooker with both sides with their hands hovering over that button, that could come back. And... It's one of the reasons that I think we need to be careful with. You know, I know a lot of people out there don't like Trump and, and his dealings with Putin, but the last people we need to be aggravating right now are the Russians and, and frankly, the Chinese from a standpoint of any type of military engagement. Our three nations together could eliminate all life on this planet many times over. And I, I think that it's, it's kind of dangerous that people like my age and older are kind of the last people to even really remember what that was like. And as we die off, you go back into a society that in some ways, when it comes to nuclear war, is as innocent as the society that existed in 1944. Where the concept was there, but the reality was not. My thoughts, just something to be a little bit sobering about. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and get into your first call today. Uh, this call is on, uh, sorry, hold on just a second there, uh, permaculture and California wildfires and wildfires in general. Jack, question for you. How would a permaculture and common use, common sense use change the forest fires in, in California? Details. Just listening to your discussion on bug out trailers. The common sense looks like we should be able to mitigate the fire damage by proper land use. How would you answer that question? Thank you very much. Okay, I mean, I'm going to start out with, you know, an admission that I, I consider myself a fairly switched-on permaculturist and a pretty smart guy, uh, but I do not have uh, a lot of experience in forestry, which is really what you're talking about here, forestry and forestry management. However, I do have a pretty good awareness of the techniques that do work in managed forests. And there are actually managed forests in California in the path of these wildfires, and they are having greater success in not burning down. Uh, and it's not because they're being better defended. The... The, the problem, as I see it, with what's going on in California and in other places, is the concept of thou shalt not touch. And so we look at that forest, and we, again, as I was talking about with Akiva yesterday, um, 
we see nature here and people here as though if humans are involved, it's unnatural and therefore it's bad. And, and we need to break that cycle because humans are part of the ecosystem. These ecosystems evolve with us. And forests are living entities that grow to a certain point and then they actually need to be taken back down and regrow. They, they, it's almost like a breathing, uh, a, a forest, you know, establishment, secession into climax and then into decline. This is, One of the things that people don't seem to understand, that forests are not meant to be forever, not in a single state. In other words, instead of the forest going away, what it does is it evolves into a new type of forest. And the other side of that is, if improperly managed, it can even become a desert uh, with direct human intervention or possibly without it. And we can avoid this and we can manage how forests work. That's what a food forest or a fuel forest is when we build one for that purpose. We are doing a managed forest system, and we are manipulating and speeding up secession, and we are maintaining for longer than the normal climax. Nature only has a few tools to clear out uh, things in a forest, like rotted wood, broken wood, dead trees, tangles, gnarls, things like that. Nature needs glades in forest, which glades are the open areas in forests, for that forest to do what it's going to do. And nature has giant megafauna animals that go into forests and open it up and graze. In Africa, for instance, you would have something like elephants would do that. Uh, buffalo will do that. Uh, large grazing mammals will go into forests and push things out of the way and open things up and feed on the, the undergrowth, etc. We have largely removed what was here to do that in, in buffalo and, and elk and things like that. And even where the elk are, there's nowhere near the populations that there used to be. Plus, there was megafauna in North America and South America long before uh, anybody arrived from Europe. And that a lot of that went extinct. Now, whether that was because of early man or some sort of natural cycle or some calamity, we don't really know. We have we have different theories on, but that's gone too. We don't have those things, and and Europe has lost these things too. There was the the wild oxen and things like that that that, that cleared out the forest. These things don't exist anymore. We we protect the forest from them. So that leaves nature with only one thing. If you don't have mammals that go in and clear the forest, either intelligently like humans or naturally like some sort of large grazing species, you have fire. There really isn't anything else. And so if we don't have... If you think of what Sepp Holzer said about when somebody asked him one time when he was describing how to build a system and use pigs in the system and use the pigs to control blackberries and brambles. And the person said, but if I, what if I don't want pigs? And he said, if you don't have pigs, then you have to do the pig's job. So if we don't have this megafauna, these large mammalian species, to move through these forests and open these things up, and that's just only one part of the problem, but this is a problem, okay? If we don't have that, then we have to do the work. And what really should be done is logging and wood harvesting 
should be done in these forests, these national and state protected lands. And the, the reasoning behind not doing it is just convoluted and stupid. One of the reasons is this just, again, we're back to that belief of I'm here, nature's there, people are evil, we should not touch it, leave no trace. But there's even, you know, when you, when you start pointing these things out, the people that actually set policy and defend this policy say that if we allow people to come in and, and let's say, cut firewood and take trees and stuff like that, they'll take ones they're not supposed to. Well, that's just an idiot, idiotic thing to say. Because if you have people that are getting federal or state-level permits, you, it, it, then they're paying for those permits, which pays for you know a minimal amount of support, uh, law enforcement to go out there and check on them and make sure that they're doing it right. And most people that would be in a system like that, getting a permit to go get that stuff out of there, don't want to lose their permit, so they're not going to intentionally do things. Besides, it doesn't take a genius to look at a tree and go, that tree is dead. And that tree needs to come out. This is a system that would easily support itself. I really oppose the statism. You guys know that. But the state can do good things. And the state can do things that are voluntary and self-supporting. It is possible. This is a perfect example. So the, seeing that forest is the resource that it is for fuel, for firewood, for craftwood, for, for all of that stuff. And then permitting the, 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 the access. And I think the best thing would be to permit the access to small businesses. Small, and when I say, I don't mean, you know, completely unmechanized one guy with a chainsaw, but I'm saying don't let mega corporations into this. You know, have as many involved as possible and rotate the areas of access because you'll find there'll be people that, you know, big giant corporations want to grow Uh, a, a thousand acres of pine trees and harvest them with a tool that looks like a giant chopper thing. You've seen them, right? They just cut the tree at the base and they run off 16 feet and jump and run off another 16 feet and bounce and then throw the slash to the side. That's what they want to do. They really don't want to go do this. But there are small time folks everywhere that if they were given this opportunity, there are people that would go in just for crafting wood purposes. But you could even give them a requirement, like if this is what you're going to do, then you need to do X amount of this. And if we open up those forests, and I don't mean cut them down, I mean open them up, that alone does a massive amount to reduce the ability of fire to spread. The other thing is there should be managed breaks in these forests. Uh, these forests. This is one of the things, well, as bad as logging could be, one of the things it did do was an area that was being logged had logging roads put in, which acted as natural breaks. And if they were maintained open, that created natural fire breaks, which gave firefighters what you call a defensible position. When a fire was observed beginning, you already knew where your natural breaks were. You weren't going in trying to create them. And wherever they were lacking, then you went into your backburns and your fire breaks. That could help as well. Donald Trump, love him or hate him, his comments, as always, taken out of context, If we were not dumping billions of gallons of water into the Pacific Ocean every year in California and we went with wise water conservation programs, including things like putting in catchment swales into our forest systems, planting more diverse ecosystems into those forest systems and maintaining them, you would have a lot less fire damage. But no, we have to protect the freaking Delta smelt that doesn't even belong there because it's endangered. It's not even indigenous to the area. This type of environmental lunacy is what's causing a lot of these problems. 
And then California as a whole, I, I had Jeff Lawton answer this question in a past episode. If anybody can help me find that episode, because I can't find it today, um, I, I'd love to, to, to replay that for you, because Jeff talked about this issue from a drought management standpoint. And what should be done in California is thousands and thousands and sm thousands of small ponds and lakes put in, in the, right into these forest systems, right into suburban systems, etc. The, the concept is if we hold the water, then there's less water. That's retarded. It's backwards. It doesn't work that way. All, all dams and ponds seep gently into the surrounding water, no matter how well sealed, sealed they are. And they create their own microenvironments. If you create managed forest systems, managed drought systems, and ponds, dams, and lakes throughout California, you'll turn that ecosystem back into what it was. People think that like the natural state of California is desert and, and, and dry, and it's not. We did this. We dried up the hills. We dried up the mountains. It's up to us to put it back. If, if somebody said, Jack, we're going to put you in charge of this, You know, I'd go get Jeff Lawton and, and get a team built. I don't feel qualified to do this. But I do understand that the solutions really aren't that complicated. It's just they need to be implemented properly. And as Jeff said when he talked about this, we need to start as high up in the landscape as possible with this. And if you look at what's going on, that's where these, the major part of these fires are because where we should be holding the most moisture and, and creating systems that move water through the ground instead of across it Up that high, that's where it's driest because we're not holding any moisture up there. You know what moisture there is, and if you if, if you just look like any, again, people want to you know just anything Trump says must be wrong. But if you just look at the L.A. River, which is basically a culvert system, and how much water goes out into the ocean every year through that sewer, basically, um, there's no doubt that Los Angeles could be providing a lot of its own water that it currently isn't. And therefore, it would be drawing less than the rest of the state and the rest of the country, and then that water could be held higher in the hills, and the whole ecosystem could be transformed. You know, they, they did it in China. Um, let me find that and add that to uh, the show notes for you today. There's an area in China called the Lewis Plateau, um, and it uh, was just basically destroyed. And this guy, John D. Liu, uh, went in and implemented a solution that is exactly the type of solution that, that California needs. And I, I see, I think the problem that we have in America is we see each thing as its own thing, as an isolated problem. We have wildfires in California. It's a wildfire problem. We have a drought in California. It's a drought problem. We have mudslides in California. It's a mudslide problem. No dummy. They're all the same problem. And they need to be addressed holistically. If you fix the drought problem by drought-proofing the landscape, you reduce the mudslides and the fires, and you make both of them more manageable when they happen. So I found this 45-minute documentary uh, by John D. Liu, and it covers the Los Plateau, and it covers some other work that he's done in other places. But when you look at the stuff in China, that area is a great analog to California, and it's far worse off, or it was far worse off, Uh, when they started this work, than California is. And it's, it's probably in many ways far better off than California is today. And if they can do it in freaking China, by God we could do it in America. So there's a solution, but what we need is the will to get it done. Uh, let's take another one.
Hey, Jack. JR from Oklahoma. Question is, as a private business owner and a supporter of the Second Amendment, could you, Jack, ever see a situation where you would like or you would make the decision to say, hey, patrons of my business, you're not allowed to carry a firearm in my establishment. So details. As I was kind of reading through some articles the other day, like this pondering came across my mind. So if I was a airline business and I owned that, right, could I at that point just liability and responsibly say, you know, I do support the Second Amendment, but an airline fuselage is not really the place to allow someone to carry a firearm. I, I don't know that I could justify that. Now, I know that that's not violating anyone's rights because you have a choice when it comes to travel. You can get in your car, you can ride a bike, you can do a plane. So if I was an airline owner, that might be a time that I would go against my you know, staunch support of the right to keep and bear arms and why we have that as a human right. Um, but I might restrict it in that position. Is there ever a time that you think to yourself, like, as this type of business owner, I may restrict it? Thanks, Jack. Let's look about at this a little bit differently and examine something that actually happened. I am not 100% in love with the National Rifle Association. Um, there was a couple of years where I let my membership lapse because I was really unhappy with some of the things that they were doing. And sometimes I feel like they do more, they spend more money raising money than they spend doing what they're supposed to do with the money that they raise. But, you know, you, you got to spend money to make money, I guess. But there really isn't another organization that's, that's been as outspoken and as, as, as heavily defending our Second Amendment right in existence. And it's been doing it for over 100 years at this point. It's, in my opinion, the, the NRA is a civil rights organization. It, the, the right to defense is a civil right. It's a God-given right. And it's the oldest civil rights organization in the United States, in my view. And I know some people will disagree with that, but that's how I honestly feel. Well, the NRA did their convention this year in Dallas, and Donald Trump came to speak at that convention as a pro-Second Amendment president. And for that event, Secret Service demanded that no guns be brought into the place where Trump was speaking. This is a gun show. There are you know, probably a million guns on display in the adjacent room. This is a gun rights organization. Now, they actually did take some flack from some people saying, hey, if, if NRA, you know, concealed carry, NRA card carrying, concealed carry permit uh, carrying, people cannot be trusted with a gun, then who the hell can? And you can make a case for that. Gun uh, control advocates said, here's the most pro-gun organization in the world demonstrating there, are, there is a place for gun control and using it to their political advantage. However, let's look at it from this standpoint. The President of the United States is a target for assassination. You can look at her history and see that that's the case. People are not above reproach. It is conceivable that someone could have been hired to try to kill the president who 
otherwise has no criminal record and has a concealed carry permit. So it, it, it's, it's theoretically possible then. So was Secret Service wrong? Because it was not an NRA decision. It was a Secret Service decision. If the President of the United States is going to be here, then, then people are not going to carry a gun into the area where we are protecting the President. It makes our job too hard. We're looking for anybody with a gun. If everybody has a gun, who do we look for? Was Secret Service wrong for that? And I know a lot of you want to knee-jerk react and say, yes, okay, but put your, like we talked about with history, put yourself in their position. They have one directive. One directive when it comes to the President of the United States. They have other things that they're detailed to elsewhere and other people. But when they're detailed to the President of the United States, they have one directive. Protect the life and safety of the President. If he's Obama, you do it. If he's Bush, you do it. If it was Reagan, you did it. If Jack Spirico somehow became president because the country lost its mind for a day, so be it. You protect him. If you hate him, you protect him. If you think he's the worst president in the, in the history of the world, if somebody takes a shot at him, you take his bullet for him. That's your job, or don't take this job. That's what it is. That's what you're supposed to do. With that directive in mind, do you not say in this place where this man that I am sworn to take a bullet for, we're not going to let firearms in because it just makes our job easier. I, I'm just saying. I'm just saying, like, and I'm not saying that the answer is yes. I'm saying you can understand how someone would feel that way. So when we start looking at companies that ban firearms, I'm going to tell you that nine times out of ten, they're not gun haters. Most people in this country don't hate guns and don't love guns. Most people, the majority, are gun generally neutral. They're the person that says, well, I don't want to own a gun, but I don't have a problem with the person like you owning a gun. These are people, when they own a business, since they don't have a strong attraction, a, st a strong affirmation on guns, when their lawyer says, hey, look, If you don't post this state-approved sign that says people are not supposed to carry in your, your, your store, and something happens, and let's say what happens is a guy breaks in, or a guy comes in and tries to rob the place, and he clearly broke the law, and a, another person there is armed and shoots him and kills him, and no one in the store gets hurt. It goes off exactly the way that the advocates for this say it should. Bad guy with a gun meets good guy with a gun. Good guy with a gun puts hole in bad guy with a gun. Bad guy with a gun dies. Bad guy with a gun gets taken away by the police. Police slap good guy on the back and say, good job. You did great. Thank you. Here's a medal. Everything goes as perfect as it can. There is nothing that prevents the family of that guy that got shot from suing you. Because you allowed a person into the store with a gun when you didn't have to. And if he, and poor little Billy laying there bleeding to death on the ground and was never going to shoot anybody. Hell, Billy had a, a painted airsoft gun. It wasn't even a real gun. He was just trying to get some money for books for school. Now, this shit has happened. Now you're a business owner. And you're not a Second Amendment card-carrying business member, uh, owner. 
You're just a, you're you're the majority of Americans. You're kind of neutral on the subject. Shit, I don't want that. And I'm not saying it's the right choice. I'm saying this is why most of these people do this. So then you have to ask yourself, if you're the business owner, how much liability will you accept for your beliefs? Because our beliefs in this should not be a religious belief, even though I do believe it's a God-given right. It's still not a religious belief. In other words, if I truly am a practicing member of a religion, and I really believe that religion, and that religion says, thou shalt not eat pork, and I actually believe that my eternal soul depends on my compliance with that, and you put a gun to my head and tell me to eat some bacon, it's, it's, it's reasonable that I might not. You know, that I, that I might say, go ahead and shoot me. I'd rather die and go to my God than defile myself and, and not. Now, I don't think I would make that decision, but you can understand where somebody's a religious belief, they might. When it comes to something like, do I let a person bring a gun in this room? I mean, that's not a religious thing. That might be, might, you might very much believe in that right. I can understand why bars say, no guns. No guns. It's a bar. Well, I'm not drinking. I don't know that you're not going to drink. I don't know that you're not going to... Now, does that make a bar a soft target, like Pulse Nightclub? Yes. But I understand the bar owner saying, you know, we have to... We have Think about what bars do. They have to employ four or five great big dudes to throw people out. I used to do that job, by the way, for, for a brief period of my life when I needed some extra money. Right? I can tell you that nine times out of ten, hey, guys, look, it's closing time. We need you to leave. Might have been you know, a little bit resistant with, oh, man, come on. But that generally, as long as you're heading toward the door, everything's good. But, you know, no Patrick Swayze crap or nothing like that. By the way, how long do you think it is before they reboot that movie? They've rebooted everything else. Anyway, um, nothing like that, but really unreasonable and sometimes dangerous situations simply trying to get somebody out of a bar. Now, if I'm a bar owner and I don't want my bouncers hurt and I know that Billy could get you know jagged up on, on, on 27 shots of Jägermeister and drinking Jäger bombs and Billy is generally responsible with his gun, you know, he may not be in that moment. Bubble shoot the jukebox type thing, right? On top of this, even I here at our workshops say, listen, when you start drinking, put your gun away. Put your gun away. I don't ban you from having a gun, but, you know, geez, you, you know, we're, we're all sitting here drinking. No one needs a loaded firearm on them when they're consuming alcohol, especially when there's a shitload of people consuming alcohol. So the answer in the end is, yes. But I would have to be confronted specifically with the decision myself to know when. And it should be the exception, not the rule. But there are certainly places where it's probably not good to have people carrying guns. Because you don't know who that person is. On the other hand, boy, you really got to limit that thinking because the same person you're telling you can't bring your gun here is, is sitting next to you at your kid's soccer game carrying a gun. And it's the same mentality that says, well, we can't have guns on college campuses. 
And so that student who's 22 years old that's trained and licensed and carries a gun to the mall, who carries a gun to go see his little, his little kid brother play basketball, etc., then when he gets to his college campus, has to take that gun off. So I think it really has to be some sort of circumstance that truly danger is actually increased, not in the minds of people, but in, in, the, in the true logistics of the situation. And it gets murky. Because who the hell drinks more than college students? But people go to bars with guns all the time, and nothing happens. So I would, I, if I owned a bar, I probably would not ban firearms from it. But if I owned a certain bar, you understand what I'm saying? If I owned a certain type of bar with a certain type of clientele that I probably wouldn't want to own, I might. Especially if I start having really dangerous situations go down to protect my staff and my other customers. I, I don't know. I, this is a, like, you can hear the conflict in my voice. You could hear it in JR's voice. And it is a situation that I think has to be individually made. Now, here's the good news. Here's the good news in this. I believe is a, this is where it goes principle over preference. Regardless of what I want, It's your business, it's your rules, and no one should tell you how to run your business. And if you want to have a business where when people come in, you say, do you have a gun on you? And they say no, and they say, would you like one? We'll loan you one while you're here. Then I think you should be able to run a business that way. And if you want to have a business that says absolutely no guns, knives, you can't bring steel tip darts in this bar, that's your business, you run it that way. And then I get to decide whether I go there or not. And we let the market decide. And I think that's really the answer. In the end, the market is the truth teller. And the market is the invisible hand that generally, if left to itself, it won't get it right immediately all the time. It won't create a utopia, but it will lead us to the best solutions. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Wayne from California. How do I know whether a Mitchell 300 real needs rehabbing or not. You've mentioned several times how you've rehabbed Mitchell 300 reels. I purchased one recently at a gun show for $20, and it seems to be working fine, but should I take it apart and rehab it anyway? I've seen some videos online, but a little daunting taking all those little parts apart and putting them back together again. I'd appreciate your input on this. Thank you. Bye. Well, first, since it works, in other words, as long as it actually does, like the drag works, the bail flips over, it flips back over when you turn the handle, it cranks. Uh, as long as it functions and you pay 20 bucks for it, you got a great deal. That's a very fair price on a, on a vintage Mitchell in working condition. I, I've seen really nice ones go for $50 to $60, uh, which might sound like a lot, but they sold for that in the 1960s and 50s. Uh, as I've talked about this reel before, uh, back in the day, you, you, the working man saved up to buy the Mitchell 300 series and 308 and what have you uh, fishing reels. They were like considered the best, and they were a reel that you knew you could leave to your kids 
and maybe your grandkids. And I think now we know you can leave them to your grandkids because people like me buy them on eBay and play around with them and have fun with them and uh, make ones that don't work work. The fact that it works means that you could open it up, not take all the parts out, clean it out a little bit, squirt a little oil and grease in a certain spot, put it back together, it'd probably be fine. Maybe. But its, its performance will continue to degrade if you go out and use it and expose the elements. There's, when I say, re, when I, I don't think I ever use the word rehab. The word that I use is rebuild. When I say I'm rebuilding one, that means I get one for like $5 and it doesn't work. And I can either get parts from somewhere else or I might, I mean, I bought one time a box of non-functioning Mitchell 300s. And I think there's a couple other patterns in there, but it was like a dozen of them for 20 bucks. And that was like a parts box now. So now if I find one that it just has a few things wrong, maybe there's a spring in it that doesn't, it's missing, a part's missing, something's broken, and it's, it's not, let's take it apart, clean it, and put it back together, and it works, and it needs something actually fixed. That's what I'm talking about rebuilding one. And I've, I've you know, I've found times you take parts from two or three different ones that are in great shape, put them into one, and then all of a sudden that one is a pristine, nice reel. There's no real money in it. Because there's a lot of functioning ones out there that, you know, again, sell for 20 to 60 bucks, depending on what they are. I've seen them go as high as 100, and the ones I've seen go for $100 are like in the box, never used, still have the manual with them, stuff like that. So um, you, you're not going to get that kind of money for one that you've rebuilt. So this is more of a fun thing, and it's pretty cool. And it's also cool to find old. You know, the old school steel guide fiberglass rods that were made in the 50s and 60s. I've got two of them I'm looking at right now over the top of my computer that I bought recently on eBay. Uh, one was made in the 1960s, and it still has the plastic wrapping on the handle. And I am going to pair it up with one of my Mitchell 300s, and I'm going to go out and fish with it. Uh, and it'll be like reconnecting with my grandparents. I think that's cool. And that's what we're really at here. But... Why do these reels exist when almost no other reels of that time exist? I'm not saying none of them do, but you, you, you don't find them. They don't have the cult following. They're not just readily available, especially where you can buy one for 20 bucks at a gun show that works. It's because the Mitchell 300s that were made back then, unlike the ones that are made today, which are a fine reel from a performance standpoint, those were designed to be disassembled, cleaned, and maintained with an annual maintenance. Basically, once a year, you take that reel apart, you clean it all up, you check all the parts. If it needs a new part, you put that part in there, you put it back together, and you go on about your way. And I know, you, like you said, there's a lot of little parts and stuff. Okay, There's a lot of little parts and stuff to 1911. We don't let the fact there's a lot of little parts and stuff prevent us from taking down our 1911 and cleaning it and, and, and lubricating it and putting it back together. And we know that, that, that anybody can learn to take down and reassemble a 1911. It's not that hard. It's a little fumbly in some spots and takes a little bit to get used to that front piece and what have you, but anybody can do it. And once you know how to do it, it's not hard. The Mitchell 300s are that. They are the 1911 of fishing reels. I think I'm the first person to say that, but I think they really are. They're just made in a way that's designed to work and to be serviceable. Now, 
it could be more. Now, we have handguns today that are more serviceable or easier to service, I should say, than a 1911. I still don't think they are the more elegant weapon from a more elegant time, but they are easier to service. Fishing reels today are not. You take a spinning reel apart today. I remember the first time I was like, oh, this reel's not working. I'll take it apart. Or I don't even think it was not working. It was a little stiff. And I was like, I'll take it apart. And when I, when I pulled the cover off, like springs popped out. And I ended up just taking this reel and being frustrated with it and throwing a bag and get rid of it and just said, screw it. And it's when I actually started going back and buying these old reels. Because when you take a Mitchell apart, things don't go flying at you. And everything has a place. And there's videos. I got a video linked to the show notes for you today that shows you exactly how to take it down. And we have something they didn't have in the 1950s and 60s. Everybody has a cell phone. So what you do is you lay that reel down and you take a picture of it. You know, when you first open it, you lay it both sides, you take a picture of it. When you take out the next set of parts, take a picture of it. Take out the next set of parts, take a picture of it. If while you're putting it back together between the video that you can find online uh, and just your intuition, you're not really sure, look at your, it, this is the way that it was. And you may even find sometimes when they don't work, somebody put a part in wrong. That's kind of hard to do and get it to go back together, but it does happen. And it's totally worth doing. And, and what you're doing with these reels when you take them apart for maintenance is completely cleaning out all the old grease and oil and then reapplying it and putting it back together. And it's, it's actually very satisfying. And it's a project I recommend that many of you consider doing with your kids. You can go on eBay and find these things. And, and find, the best thing to do is start out with one that works. Don't try to fix broken ones right away. Find one that works. There's plenty of them out there. Pick one up. Follow this video. And do the work. Take it apart. Clean it. You'll, you'll get a sense of satisfaction out of it. And if you take that reel out and go fishing with it, 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 it will be a different experience. On that, I found a, a, a promotional video from 1956 of a championship fisherman fishing for bass with a Mitchell 300 and a fiberglass rod in 1956. And it is, for those of you that are my age, you know, in the 80s, we were still listening to reel-to-reel uh, movies on movie day. And they were like movies made in the 50s and 60s, like, dun, 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 you know, remember that stuff? Yeah, like Troy McClure plays in The Simpsons. Uh, that, that is the kind of video this is, but it's actually really kind of cool. I think it's in Technicolor, honestly, because it is in color, but it kind of has that weird look to it. Uh, but, man, I encourage you guys to do this. And, and don't be like, you got 20 bucks in this thing. I promise you, you can get it back together. Set up an area. Get some oil, get some grease, break it down, clean it. And I'll tell you what cleans these things beautifully. Birchwood Casey Gun Scrubber. Um, it just takes everything off of them. It's a, it's a great cleaner to use on them. And uh, like a nylon to toothbrush, don't use any kind of metal brush uh, because you've got metal on metal in these reels. That's why we grease them. And you don't want any kind of scarring in that where, where metal on metal can start to be bad, right, instead of good. Uh, but these really should be taken apart once a year. And so it's not rehab, it's maintenance. Uh, rebuilding, is when something, rebuilding and repair is when something's broken. Give it a shot. If you can break down a 1911, if you can take an 870 shotgun apart and put it back together, uh, you can do this. It, it, you might get frustrated. 
But the video I've got has every single step, so you can watch it over and over until you get it right. And and once you do it, it's just like taking that gun apart. The first time's a little scary. You're afraid you're not going to be able to put it back together. You might get a little frustrated and you do it. The second time it's a little easier, and after the third and fourth time, you can tell somebody else how to do it. You know, I mean, it, it, it's military training is, is that much. I'll show you, you do it, and you show me. And, and by the time you do that, you've got it pretty well down. You learn best by teaching. So pretend to teach somebody. Do it with your kids. You know the beauty about kids? They ain't afraid of shit. They'll rip stuff apart like crazy. So put some control on them if you do it with the kids. But give it a shot. And check out uh, eBay for older vintage fishing rods. Kind of a medium, medium light action uh, type. Go real well, about six to six and a half foot, paired up with a Mitchell 300. Uh, and if you, anybody does this, uh, post a picture of your stuff, man, on the blog. There's, you can actually post pictures in the comments now. I set that up a couple months ago. Let's take another one. Hi, this is Michael on the Key Peninsula in Puget Sound, Washington. My question is, I have a Ruger 1022 and was wondering what a good quiet long-range caliber would be good for. The details are... I live on five acres, and though my neighbors often make a lot of noise exceeding their exercise. The Second Amendment writes, I'd like to be a little more considerate, especially in the evening. I've occasionally had problems with cheap ammunition jamming, but I'm not sure if that isn't the load size or because I haven't run that many rounds through the rifle. Of course, I'd be pleased if bulk ammo offers a solution, and thanks. Hi, this is Michael again from the Key Peninsula. I think I just realized that I said long-range caliber when I recorded, but of course, I know you man know that I meant long rifle. That's all. Thanks a lot. Bye. Real quick before I answer this one, uh, I just want to do a little backfilling on the fishing reel uh, question that we just handled before it. I, I didn't mention, I do have uh, my preferred oil and grease uh, in the show notes uh, with a link. And I have that video that I talked about with the guy fishing in 1956 or 54. And I have a video on the actual procedure. So that's all in the show notes for you. Okay, I'll, I'll do my best here. It, that was a little bit confusing, and I, I didn't really have time to call this guy. I did try texting the number that the call came from, and apparently it wasn't a mobile number. So I wasn't able to get any clarification. But what it sounds like you want is a quiet 22 Uh, for short-range use out of your 1022, and you want your 1022 to function well. Uh, dropping down to, like, shorts and CB caps and stuff like that just isn't going to work. You just don't have enough oof to cycle that, that weapon reliably when you do that. So the the best course of action to, to, do, to at least reduce the, the, the noise level some is going to a subsonic long rifle. And out of all of them that I've tried through various semis, including 1022s, Marlin Model 60s, etc., uh, the Winchester M22 subsonics that use a 45 grain bullet, um, which is heavy for a 22 long rifle, tended to be the best functioning. And I think it's because of that heavier weight bullet causes more back pressure. I'm not sure, but they just seem to have worked about as good as a standard 22 long rifle uh, and my and my two guns that I shoot mostly that are semi-auto. So that's where I would try. From a standpoint of the, the, the thing that's functioned the best for me across all guns uh, and accuracy and semi-autos functioning and all of it together, 
a lot of people hate them, and I don't know why, but Remington Thunderbolts. Uh, it's one of the cheaper offerings, and yeah, they're kind of dirty, I guess, as ammo goes, sort of, kind of, uh, but not really, and they work flawlessly. Uh, Remington's Golden Bullets work pretty flawlessly, too. The good news is, at bulk ammo and almost everywhere now, you actually have a choice. You know, it was a year ago still that we were still reeling from this ammo shortage, and you could get, you know, two or three different kinds of 22 ammo. Three years ago, I mean, you were lucky to get a brick of anything. Uh, so it's at least the choices are out there. And the best thing you can do, really, if, as long as they're back in stores, it, you know, go buy by the box before you go buy by bulk ammo. And uh, give it a shot, or three, or ten, or fifty, and, and see what works best in your gun. And find what your gun likes under your circumstances and environment and conditions, etc. But those are the three that I'd recommend that you start out with. I do have links to where you can find them in bulk ammo. I will say this about the quiet thing. Uh, 22s ain't loud. If you're on five acres, you're not worried about the short distance, as in limiting how far the bullet can travel, Right, you're, maybe you're willing to accept that you have shorter range because of a quieter, uh, less powerful round. But you still have to be mindful of what's behind you, and you have to rely on, you know, like earth to stop the bullet, not that it's just going to peter out and not make it to your neighbor's house. So, to me, you should be able to run anything you want through your gun when we're talking 22 long rifle. And it's 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 pretty interesting how quiet the damn things really are once you're even a couple hundred yards away. They're just, they're just not loud. So I really wouldn't let that make your decision, especially since you're saying your neighbors maybe push it a little bit. Um, then that probably means that you know they're not going to complain. So always be safe and mindful of your muzzle direction and what's behind your target, and follow the rules of being a a safe rifleman. But I mean, uh, I, I would probably just use full tilt ammo because that's going to work best in your Ruger now if it's new and it sounds like it is it may not be a break in that it needs it may need a good initial cleaning um, guns come with a whole bunch of grease and cosmoline and other crap on them that really needs to come off before we go out there and shoot so you might want to do what we were talking about last thing with the fishing reel and go get a good video tutorial on breaking that thing down and get it good and cleaned up and properly lubricated. And, yeah, then take it out. And I mean, I think one of the best things you can do with a 1022 is get a full, like, high-velocity round of some sort, a box of them, and just blow them through it. Just slap a magazine in, let 10 rounds off, slap a magazine and let 10 rounds off, and get that cycle running, and then give it a good thorough cleaning, and then, and then go about, you know, considering that kind of your break-in. Uh, and then go about kind of you know figuring out what ammo it likes best or whatever. But the truth is, people say that in general, I found 1022s are fairly accurate, and they shoot everything pretty good. If you want more accuracy, you know you're, you're looking at either some custom work on it, or uh, you're looking at a cheap old model Marlin 25, or about the most accurate 22 I've ever seen in my life. Um, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. This one's a complicated one. Hey, Jack, this is Dan, uh, Lake Texoma, Oklahoma. Looking forward to seeing you on Saturday. Just moved down from Milwaukee. Otherwise, I'd be flying down to go to the party. Uh, cool question for you. How does somebody work through the system when you're already under its heel? Uh, details for that. My cousin 
his wife had a mental break, burned down the house, and their children were taken away from Child Protective Services. My aunt is working and and even has moved over uh, in that area of the country to work on getting uh, custody of them and is just having difficulties, including having CPS lie in court and fabricate things. Now, she wants to start a blog and do a whole bunch of other things. How does she make headway with CPS, and then how does she do a good job of telling the world? Thanks. Look forward to seeing you. Bye now. So my instinct here is don't do that. Don't start a blog. Don't start talking about how evil the state is in this situation um, because you're in the middle of it, and it will be used against you. And I know it's wrong. People say, well, you shouldn't. You should stand up and listen. There's the ki- there's kids involved here. They have the power right now. My instinct is you should get an attorney, a good one, if you don't have one. And, and you know the, the guy that knows your brother-in-law that said he'd do it is not necessarily a good one. And you need to do whatever you need to do to get control back of this situation. And then, once you have control and you have these people out of your life... If you want to tell your story then, then you can tell your story. Because this is, this, is, this is why the state's tyranny is tyranny. Because it can be used so aggressively to harm a child. And you, know, you say these people lied in court. And my instinct is, you're telling the truth. They lied. They'll do it. They'll do it. They're not above reports. They, have, they are one of the... The the arms of government with the most power and the least amount of oversight. And that always exists where our greatest fears are. Someone harming a child is one of the most horrible things that we can think of as, as, as human beings. I mean, if I see you beating up an old lady, I'm going to take you out, man. But if I see you beating up a little kid... I might punch your head into the ground until my hand is making con- contact with the cement on the other side of it. I mean, really, like I don't want to do that, but I, I know there's a piece of me that I could become that person if I saw you abusing a child. And because we feel that way intrinsically, that it's so horrible, that we feel that, hey, if a parent's abusing a kid, you got to stop it immediately. So we, we, we created this organization we call Child Protective Services, and we gave them that power. And it seems amazing to me that we can look at individual situations and we'll see places where it is so blatantly obvious that it was a place for that power to be used. That it's, it, is, it is, there is no way in hell there was an abuse going on in that situation. And CPS came in and looked at it several times and did nothing. And then we'll see situations where, you know, people are down on their luck, but they're doing the best they can. They're not abusing their kids. And then they just come in and take them. And it's because these people literally have a, the, the ability to make a decision without justifying it. So how do they feel that day? How do they feel that day? And, and, and I don't, have, I mean, if somebody's been through this and has more advice, I'd appreciate you guys chiming in, send me an email, make a call, let this person know what you should do. But I have seen in situations like this where people decide to become an advocate in the middle of it and it generally doesn't 
help the situation. In the end, the final decision gets made by a judge. And what you need to be able to do is show that judge that the environment you can provide for that child is better than the environment that the state can provide. I believe that most judges, when presented with that choice, if they believe that, that this child will be safer and will be less likely for something to happen if I put that child into this relative's custody, that's what they're going to do. And I, I personally think that I don't have enough information to really advise you, and then I'm not a lawyer, so I really can't anyway. But my instinct is to find out what needs to be done to get that child back into the custody of a loving family member. And then you need to figure out how to separate yourself from the system as quickly as possible, and it may not be as quick as you want. And this is where I'll kind of turn the corner with this where it applies to more people. This is why when you see anything going on anywhere that you don't approve of, you need to think really hard before you involve the state. Is anybody really getting hurt? Or are you just concerned that maybe there's a problem? If it's you're just concerned, then you need to, you need to take on the responsibility yourself. If you feel, i got to do something, I'm not sure, but i got to do something, then the something you need to do is to figure out if there's actually a problem before you contact anybody. Because state workers come from the viewpoint, after doing the job for a while, like that, that everybody does something wrong. This is why prosecutors are dangerous. Everybody's guilty of something. I mean, honestly, I think that's what's going on with the, the, you know, the Trump investigation right now. He's guilty of something. So it doesn't matter if it has anything to do with Russia or not. And that's not political. That's just an observation that anybody that's honest and not sucked into it would make. And I think that when we look at what's going on with Trump right now, every American should be paying attention to that and realizing that this narrative that they keep giving us about, oh, this is just political corruption at the top. The rank and file does every Bullshit. This is what they would do to anybody that they set their sights on for any reason, including that day my dog died and this person made me sad when I looked at him. It's so much power that these people have, whether it's CPS, whether it's prosecutors, whether it's police officers. They have a tremendous amount of power. And it's why I get so infuriated when I see people violate the oath they take with such an office. Because the amount of trust placed in them by society, and society has forgotten how much trust there really is. And they've, we have just made it to the point. This is why we have to start examining things different as people. Somebody does something wrong, we just assume they suck. We understand why it happened. Because it goes from that, we know this person did this, and therefore they're just an evil person. There can't be any reason they did this. There could have been anything in their life where their life would have worked out a little differently and they would have made better decisions. No, they just suck and they'll suck forever. Because the leap we make from there to, well... If they're being accused, they must have done something. It's a tiny, it's not a leap. It's a single step. It's not even a step forward, it's like a step sideways. And that's where we get to. Well, if CPS came in, they must be doing something wrong. And that's why they get away with it. So I don't have a better answer for you right now other than what do we need to do to prove to you that this child is safer with us than they are with you? and work with that system, and get a lawyer. 
And again, your buddies, uncles, cousins, former roommate that's a lawyer, it's not. You need a person that specializes in this stuff and has a good track record. Know this lawyers get reviews. Read their reviews. Read their reviews. Pick a lawyer the way you would pick any other service. Has this person done a good job for people in my situation in the, in the past? Because, you know, we, I just recently went through it with a, with an uh, adoption of, of my, my grandson to my son. And the guy did a good job in the end, but it took badgering the hell out of him for the last couple months of it to get it done. Everything had been done for months on their end, and they're just waiting for him, but he already got paid because he had to get paid in advance. So, you know, if, if my son had taken the time to look up his reviews, he would have known that that guy is known for that. So you, you don't have time to wait around six months when you're actually trying to get custody back. So I say you've got to play their game here, and this is why we want to stay outside of the system. And this is why we need to take, if you pick up the phone, and you call the police, if you call the state in any form for something, and you haven't done your due diligence and tried to at least solve the problem yourself first, and that doesn't mean going vigilante or some stupid shit like that, but you, you're not sure, and you just call, and then this person gets shot by the police, tased by the police, gets their door kicked in, has their kids taken away, gets their dog shot. Guess what? You get some of that responsibility. You get some of that guilt. We become a damn nation of tattletales. The police generally only show up when people call them and tell them to go somewhere. So think hard before you do. And that doesn't mean you know the whole not my business and, and apathy thing. It means personal responsibility for what you do. So... Anyway, that's the best I can do on that. I'd love help from the audience on it because I don't have any experience with it, thank God. That brings us to uh, my little wrap-up for you today. So Patrick Rorman was at my house about what, three weeks ago now. We went fishing for stripers and white bass with a dude named Omar Cotter. Omar Cotter is an Irishman, a little, little red-headed firebrand uh, Irishman, an older guy like me, about my age, maybe five years older than me. Now, I've been a professional guide for over 20 years, and... Uh, He's actually on a tactical response team for uh, uh, a, a building complex, uh, commercial building complex here in, in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth. This is his full-time job, and a part-time guide. Um, so the reason I just throw that there, Omar's a great dude. He's taken me out a bunch of times. He's a good friend. If, you, if you've been thinking about doing something different, check out Luck, Luck O the Irish Fishing Guide Service if you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. He fishes Cedar Creek. Uh, Grapevine and Tawakini, and all of them are great lakes. So Patrick was here for a few days, and uh, Buddy Thad from the Army was here, and, and we were just kind of hanging out and watching movies and YouTube videos. And, and Patrick introduced me to this dude named Alex the French Guy, Alex French Guy Cooking on YouTube. And this guy's kind of eccentric and a little weird and food geeky, but really does some cool stuff. And so I subscribed to his channel and started watching some of his older videos. And I found this video the other day by him. It's like over a year old. And it's just a brilliant piece of viral marketing. So I'm bringing it up for that, too, for, because it's just an, an example of something that you can do to differentiate yourself that will get shared a lot. Because here I am on a podcast telling 200,000 people about it. Now, he didn't pay me. He didn't reach out to me. I don't know him. Patrick told me about him. I saw this. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to share it. 
It is the no-brainer stir-fried generator, and it just uses a few ingredients with each one. And you, you go to this page, and it's at frenchguycooking.com, and it's slash stir-fry-generator. Stir you can Google it or go to the show notes, and it just says, hit that button, generate a new stir-fry, generated out of more than 4,800 stir-fry recipes, courtesy of Alex for his lovely community, Usually cook all ingredients separately, then toss them together at the end with some of my all-around stir-fry glistening sauce, uh, which he tells you how to make in the video. And I'll find the video for you because I didn't realize that wasn't there. So, like, I just clicked it. It came up with Lady Yang's chicken, onion, chilies, and coriander, uh, and add anything solid stir-fry. So it'd be noodles, rice, whatever. I'm going to click it again. Old Wang's shrimp, carrot, cashew, nuts, basil, and rice stir-fry. And I'm going to Uh, click a couple times here and get one that has he has where you don't use any starches and no, no carbs needed for those of us that are paleo-ish uh, Lady Wong's chicken, bamboo shoot, peanuts and Thai basil and no carbs needed stir fry and you just click and boom here's a new recipe and there's no long explanation as how to do it, you watch his video how he makes a stir fry and he built like this jet engine stir fry cooker thing it's pretty badass too um And I just think it's cool in a couple different ways. Number one, like a lot of you guys are doing content generation type businesses. What can you come up with? I mean, this is, I, I know what this is doing. This is pulling from a database spreadsheet. It's just columns. There's a bunch of names on one, one column. You know, Mrs. Wong, Mrs. Wang, Mrs. Liu, whatever. Okay? And then there's a column that is all your meats. And it's beef, shrimp, pork, you know, etc. And then there's one that's like, you know, mushrooms and, and, and whatnot. And it's just basically grabbing at random and assembling this so that every time you make one, you may never see the same one twice, even if you sat here and did it 4,800 times. And the way it gets to 4,800 is like, I used to sell computer hardware for a company called GarrettComp. And we said we had over 20,000 options. Well, that's because the equipment was modular. And there's one piece of equipment I could build for you like a thousand different ways. Now, really, there was like 10 or 15 ways that you would ever actually build it. But in theory, we could give you over 20,000. So the point was, if you need something, Garrett Comp can do it because, because of a modular platform. That's kind of what this is. Except everything that comes out of it is something that I would, frankly, probably eat. Let me, get, let me give you a few more, and you tell me if it doesn't sound like something that was good. If I said I was making this for you and you came over. Mrs. Mao's Beef, Pak Choy, Cashew Nut, Coriander, and Rice. Sounds like a pretty good stir-fry to me. Chef Lynn's chicken, bamboo shoot, chilies, Thai basil, and anything solid. So I would do noodles for you with that one. Uh, let's see. Miss Lynn's chicken, onions, almonds, and Thai basil, and no carbs needed stir-fry. Uh, General Zang's uh, shrimp, broccoli, peanut, Thai basil. Um, Mr. Dong's uh, shrimp, pak choy, almonds, and spring onion, and noodles. I mean... They all work. And that was kind of his point, too, that, like, that's really what stir-fry is. And, and stir-fry started is, this is what's available today. I'm going to throw it all in the wok and boom and done. Uh, and the little sauce he makes is great, too. So, like, I wanted to bring out the entrepreneur and viral side of this and say, like, is there something you could do similar to this that wouldn't be that hard? And he said he created He probably didn't create it. He doesn't look like a coder to me. Though some of his other videos, like, he's pretty good at figuring stuff out. He may have learned how to do this. But he probably paid some guy. I mean, if you told somebody what you wanted and gave them the data, this is something a coder could put together in a couple hours. 
So this is, you know, maybe a couple hundred dollars at most. If you used a, a more expensive coder to do this than, you know, your, your, your typical really low-end coder, they could probably still do it would just take two weeks and bullshit you about why it's hard. Uh, but definitely a cool thing. Then the next is, like, this guy I think is worth checking out, right? Like, you should subscribe to his channel and what have you because making things that seem complex simple is, is, is cool, and cooking is a way to bond with your kids. Uh, so I gave you two projects, I think, today that would be cool to do with kids. And one is maybe go make a couple of these stir fries up over the weekend or over the next couple of weeks and get get that old Rich Mitchell 300 fishing reel and learn to take it apart and put it back together. It's it's really a, a great thing, and you can create a family heirloom with that and, and a family tradition of cooking. Those are cool. And I wanted to, to put some stuff in today that was a little bit more lighthearted than a lot of the stuff that we usually talk about because, you know, we're here to talk about survival. But this show's never been about gloom and doom. It's been about empowerment. And empowerment comes through understanding, learning, and taking actions. And we need to be taking positive actions in our lives every single day. And learning how to cook is one way we can be healthier and happier and have greater family bonds. You want your kid to put the phone down? You can't make a stir-fry and use your phone at the same time. you got to focus on what you're doing or you burn yourself. So I'll, I'll include the video that goes with this in the show notes. I'll go look that up for you uh, before I put this out today. A uh, little sauce you make up in a squeeze ball. It's great for stir-fry. Simple, easy, just stupid simple. And, and a lot of things in life are really that way. And modern survival is about all of the challenges we have in modern life. And empowering your kids to know how to do these things is really important Uh, you don't want your kid to be the one that's on Facebook uh, in a few months from now when the next video comes out of a kid trying to figure out how to work a, uh, a can opener or something like that. You, you really don't want that to be your kid. Anyway, with that, we've come to the end of another episode. I want to remind you guys that right now I have a sale going on with the MSB. It's $35 bucks a year uh, for MSB right now instead of the normal $50. You get all the great discounts. You get all the great extra content. Um you get to be a member supporting the show. Instead of 18 cents an episode, it's about 12 cents an episode. All you've got to do when you sign up for the MSB is use the discount code 10YEARS. Discount code is 10YEARS. One zero years works. T-E-N years is one word, works. I did it both ways so no one would get confused. And it wouldn't matter. All you do is remember 10 years. We're doing that because we're having our 10-year anniversary party on Saturday evening. I wanted to also announce that Uh, yesterday, about 5 in the evening, I put out a post about the 10-year anniversary party for those who are coming. All the details you need. And I want to say this on the air so that I make sure it's clear. There were two groups. There were the first 50 and then everybody after that. The people that came after that were add-ons and they were beyond our budget. So we charged $25 bucks if you're in that second group of people to cover the cost of your food. Um, in the end... Um, We had, I think, 25 people like that. All of you that are in that group about a week ago would have gotten a text from Dorothy that said, hey, you're in group two, here's some additional information, and you know what to do. If you, if you signed up and you did not get a text, you are in the first group, you don't owe any money, you don't have to pay, just show up, and we're going to have a blast on Saturday. The post went out, gave all the information, including the address of the location, Please do not be deceived and end up going to the Hewlin Mail Masa Mail, whatever the Mail Masa. Gee, I can't remember the name where my own damn party is. It's Meso Maya. 
And the deal is, if you do Fort Worth, it brings up the Hewlin location, and they call the one in downtown Fort Worth something that doesn't make any sense. It's the name of the building it's in. But it's near Sundance Square, so I don't want anybody confused. One person, you know who you are, showed up yesterday. I don't know how that happened, but you did. So, uh, <laughs> sorry about that, man, but I'll see you Saturday. Uh, anyway, uh, I put out the post, guests that are coming, all that stuff yesterday, and I really look forward to seeing you all there. And if, you, you know, if you're not coming... We still have that discount sale for you 10 years on the MSB. That brings us to our item of the day. Item of the day today is one for your kitchen. We were talking about cooking. Uh, really not generally a cooking thing, but you, you can cook with it. And I talk even about how to cook with it in the article. But it's the Hamilton Beach electric kettle. I think electric kettles are one of the most essential things to go in any kitchen today. You can bring about 1.7 liters of water to a boil in four minutes without using your stove or even turning it on. Uh, it heats very efficiently because all the walls heat from all sides. Uh, and that makes it efficient and quick. My primary use for it is making coffee and tea in my French press. And I have a link in the review now, down in the PS, of this carafe that I found on Amazon as well that is awesome. And with my French press and this uh, and that carafe, I'll go and I'll make you know three, three batches of coffee in the morning. And I'm good for the day. I've got as much as if you had a big, you know, coffee maker doing it, and it stays nice, and it's better coffee than comes out of a drip maker for sure when you use a French press. It makes great tea as well. It stays hot for hours in the carafe, uh, so you can check all the stuff out in the review today. But the, one of the great things using an electric kettle for is, is boiling eggs, uh, and I tell you exactly how to do it in in the uh, article. And you just follow that, and your eggs will be perfectly boiled every time. It'll boil about four of them uh, at a time, which is usually enough for most people to boil some eggs. And since it's easy, you'll do it. Um, at least that's how I look at it. The easier things are, the more likely they are to do them. But uh, I use it for a lot of stuff, making meat, all kinds of stuff. Anyway, I've got, got a review for you up on it today. Uh, and by the way, I've sold over three years now hundreds of these, hundreds of them. I, I can never see who bought what, but I can see how much of something was bought by month, by week, by year. And I pulled it up today, and it's been three years of, of sales of this thing since I first reviewed it, and hundreds of them have sold, and I've not heard from a single person saying they're unhappy. And trust me, when something makes somebody unhappy, well, they tend to tell me about it. So remember, you can you can find that product, but you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. It's by uh, Billy Joel. And this is a song that most people do know by Billy Joel that are at least, you know, 40 years old or older anyway. Um, it's called Pressure. And one of the reasons that people tend to know this song is if you grew up in the MTV generation, which is anybody that's probably about 40 to 60 right now, um, they played almost every song that had a video on MTV uh, because there weren't that many songs that had videos in the very f first years of the dadgone thing. So, Uh, it was important to make videos. Now, Billy Joel had no interest in making videos. He, he really didn't. So the guy, I can't remember the guy's name, but there's a guy that, that did this video. It's the same guy that did the Allentown video, which actually Allentown was a great song. The video was terrible. It was awful. Um, Billy Joel just said, basically, do whatever you want. I'll do whatever you want. And, like, there was things where, like, where parts of it were, like, Billy Joel's, like, falling back into this foam with his hands on his head, and he had, like, no idea why he was doing it or whatever. Uh, but he did it anyway. So I thought that was kind of interesting, uh, the way that that video came about. But the song is really about the pressure of life and not being able to handle it. And it's coming from a stamp, you know, Billy Joel usually sings his songs either about a person or about himself. 
not really about you, the listener. And this song is really like, there's no individual person named here. It's you. And it's also coming from the standpoint of, I'm the same guy. And you used to call me paranoid. But now you see what's really going on. You know, your life has all been Channel 13, is one line in it. And he's talking about Sesame Street and PBS, Channel 13 New York. You know, and now you can't handle pressure. And, you know, pressure's a real thing, man. We call it stress, et cetera. Um, and, and we can crack under it. But you know the number one way to reduce pressure is to not feel it from things that really don't affect you and or you really don't control. Part of the reason people feel like so much pressure in life today is because they're carrying burdens that aren't theirs. You have enough shit in life to worry about. Paying the bills, taking care of your kids, teaching them right, getting them to grow up as, as fine young men and women, developing your own school skill sets, developing your own personal education and self-led learning furthering yourself in your career, your business, whatever it is, being a good partner, a spouse in a relationship, being a good brother, a sister, etc. There's like all those things are in your circle of control, not just influence, control. And, and what we do is we we worry so much about things that we don't control that we take that energy and expend it in, in, in ways that don't even make any sense while the things we could control are falling apart in front of us. And of course we feel pressure. We don't have to. You don't have to do it. You can make a decision. Let it go, man. The things that you do not influence and you do not control, even if you're concerned about them, pay just enough attention to make sure if there's a wave coming at your head, you know to move and swim. Otherwise, screw it. And you'll find that pressure will go down. But not for Mr. Billy today, no. No, he's feeling it full on. Let's enjoy it as he freaks out. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Christmas.